iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, there's a big win for Burnley at the bottom of the Premier League. But my word, Antonio Conte and Spurs, will he be at the club as manager next season? We'll also look back on the week in the Champions League, a draw for Manchester United away in Spain. And what next for Romelu Lukaku with Chelsea? Meanwhile, Alexander Mitrovic becomes the record goal scorer in the championship. And there are some new big managerial appointments in the EFL. This is the game. Welcome back to the game. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Tom Clark, Jonathan Northcroft, and joining us from Naples, Ian Hawkey. Listen, uh, the European football this week's been good. We'll get to it because I think the Premier League was even better and threw up some incredible discussion points for us. We have to start with the game at Turf Moor. Burnley with back-to-back wins for the first time this season. Sean Dyche saying he'd never overthought the table and survival was all about his team rather than those around them. And it has completely changed the complexion of that relegation battle, Tom Clark. And, and, and what a performance, once again, if you like, from Sean Dyche's team. Absolutely, Hugh. Burnley are back. We should give credit, of course, to Alison Rudd of the many slightly bold predictions she made on Monday's show. She did say she could see Burnley beating Tottenham, and so and so it was. It's been building to this a little bit, this run of form. You could argue it started since losing to Leeds when everyone then said, oh, Burnley are in real trouble. They then played six games, scored five, conceded only two. And I mean, that really is everything that Burnley are all about. They've still got Brentford, Norwich, Newcastle and Watford to come. They've given themselves such a great chance now and pulled other teams into it. They were excellent, excellent last night. I watched it back this morning. They just seem to do all the things that we know Burnley for, but you had players like Josh Brownhill, I think was superb last night in midfield. And I mean, you don't get more Burnley than Ben Mee rising at the back post to dominate his centre-half opponent in Christian Romero and powering a header in into the bottom corner and then running off to celebrate in the pouring rain in front of his faithful fans. I mean, that's about as Burnley as it gets. And it was great. it's great to see and it's going to make for a thrilling relegation battle now. Is this maybe what Burnley needed to finally feel the heat, the pressure? Because I think Ben Mee spoke afterwards as well about the fans being, you know, back on top in terms of pushing the side on. And that had helped Burnley a lot. Uh, have they just really woken up to how difficult their situation is? And now suddenly they're all about the fight again. I don't think so, actually. I think one of the appealing things about Burnley is that group of players and just their level of motivation, ruggedness, professionalism year after year. I don't think they needed to be in a pickle to to find that source of motivation. I just think they, you know, they're a thin squad. They had a couple of key players not at their best. 
And probably the Chris Wood situation has helped them because they, they, they did need something a little bit fresh. Fout Vakehorst has been absolutely superb. So far, he's been the target man plus. And it's personality. It's not just Sean Dyche. It's, it's people like Ben Mee. As Tom said, Ben Mee out-muscling the defender who was you know masterful against Manchester City at the weekend, but in the rain on a, on a horrible cold night, not finding it quite so easy at Turf Moor. It's just so it's so Burnley, and um, that group of players finds it in themselves year after year to to fight. The old favourites were back: Rodriguez, Tarkovsky, you know, Dwight McNeil, Cork, old Aaron Lennon playing. They're perennials, and I think we we enjoy them for it. I think they kind of set the benchmark at the bottom. They 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 set a level of of performance that others have got to try and climb above, and it's going to be up to Leeds now. Everton, Watford, Norwich, obviously, to try and get above that that sort of Burnley benchmark. That's part of the Premier League, isn't it? Burnley in the rain, pulling off a result like that. I do like the phrase, it's so Burnley. It could be a great (laughs) title for one of those ITVB documentaries about, you know, the wives of the players in the Premier League, you know, Janet and Sharon or whatnot, going down to a match at Turf Moor and cheering their side on. I've got to pitch that one, I've got to say. I think there is a crucial point with Burnley around a character and a personality that has been built over the years. You know, I think for a lot of people, they said, well, Burnley will be safe because you know what you get with Burnley. And people have sort of had that. They've been relying on that in many ways throughout the season. Um, but it is an important distinction compared to some of the other teams around them who maybe don't know exactly what they are. I think that's exactly right. As, as Johnny said, they set a benchmark. And, and I think it also it creates an aura, doesn't it? You know, we've all been talking about Burnley in the rain and, and, and Burnley will love that idea and possibly dread the coming of spring just in case the rain stops. <laughs> Within the next four or five games, they have to play Palace and Leicester possibly winnable. Leicester are going to Burnley. And, um, you know, the, the other team in this equation who, who I think, in a sense, are the direct opposite of Burnley in terms of their apparent, you know, being accustomed to, to these sort of battles is, is Brentford. Burnley had to go to Brentford, I think, at the beginning of March. So, you know, that, that's, that, that's a key game as well. To get out, they've got to, you know, they've got to find somebody else to take their place, obviously, and, uh, and Leeds and Brentford look particularly vulnerable at the moment. If Burnley know exactly what they are and they're they're Burnley-ish, then a Spurs as Spursy as we've come to believe <laughs> over the past, well, I guess thirty years. Um, Antonio Conte after the game, some mystic messages from him. But let's start with their actual performance. And Jonathan, I'll come to you on this. Um, having beaten Manchester City, why on earth did Tottenham's performance fall so far from that? If ever a question summed up Tottenham, it, it, it's that, isn't it? I met one of my best mates is a Spurs fan, and and he sent me exactly that message yesterday before the game. You know, we're, we're going to lose tonight. They knew what was coming, Tottenham fans. And Anton Conte was saying the the, the part the part of his remarks I I really picked up on. You know, him talking about his future obviously is the, the is is big stuff, but. Beyond that, he talked about the same group of players, this club that changes managers, but there's the same group of players. And he was, you know, he was he was speaking a real truth there. They're good players. We you know, players like Harry Kane and Son and Eric Dyer and 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 Hoiberg and Loris. You know, I, I don't think you can look at them and say there are there are big character flaws or they don't try, they're not they don't have quality. But maybe over the years 
they have become, I don't know, conditioned to to fail, to underachieve. I, it must get on. It must. It must be a sort of self fulfilling prophecy for for footballers who who kind of experience this time and time again, and the performances dip. I I kind of feel like I'm, this is almost psychobabble, but I can't quite explain why this expected pattern happens so often. They were so good against City. I mean. I suppose the caveat would be that was a, a, that was a very very different opposition that played in their hands that, that allowed them to counterattack in a in, in a in a Conte way and had a, you know a gigantic performance from Harry Kane. So this is a different proposition. Burnley were banked and narrow, and and they had to try and break them down, and it was it was different for them. I saw the highlights; I didn't see the whole game. Harry Kane still looked like he was playing quite well. So there's a lot of things in the mix, but I do think it comes down time and again to to players who just aren't quite able to sustain that consistency of achievement. And it is consistency that, that separates good players from great players and good teams from great teams. And Spurs haven't had it. What do you think about the situation at Spurs, Tom? I'm really torn between kind of going along the similar lines as Johnny and particularly our Burnley chat and saying, well, it's just so Spurs. But I'm, I, I'm sure listeners are thinking, God, give us some bloody analysis for Christ's sake. Stop talking in riddles. I've watched quite a bit of Tottenham of late and they're thinking about the Wolves game. They were better than they were in the Wolves game. I think having watched the Burnley game, they, you know, they created more, they played at a bit more pace with a bit more intensity. Kulazewski is actually impressing me. He looks a lot better than I thought he would. He seems to have you know, hit the ground running more than I expected in the Premier League. You know, he's creating chances. As Johnny said, I think Kane was better. He wasn't as good as he was against City, of course. But I do think it comes back to that point Johnny said, and I was reflecting in the grand scheme of things, the Premier League is bloody hard. And like, you know, we'll come on to Liverpool smashing leads, but we kind of view these teams, and this is not to make excuses for Tottenham, but we've now got this situation where Chelsea are maybe the only slight exception, but all these teams battling for fourth, and we're judging them slightly against the behemoths of Liverpool and Manchester City. That relentlessness is almost unheard of, and it's fairly unique. And you have managers like Conte who are brought in, and like Mourinho at Manchester United, and they're asked and expected to replicate that same thing, and it's bloody hard you know, Burnley away on a Tuesday night when Burnley have found a bit of form and have stopped conceding goals. That's a tough game. Liverpool went there and only won 1-0 and had a really tough game. I'm not trying to make excuses for Tottenham, but that thing Johnny said where they're a team that are still finding their way under Conte, they've got players that maybe suit when the pressure's off and they're away at Man City and they're kind of given a bit more freedom and they're not expected to do anything. You know, it's that kind of 8 out of 10. It's hard to be 9, 10 out of 10 every single game all the time in the Premier League when you're coming up against teams like Burnley who are fighting for their lives in a bit of form. I don't know whether that has been any more analytical than it's just no, so but Do you know what? And, and sometimes I've, I've, got to, I've got to maybe agree with both of you. Sometimes it's not necessarily about all the tactics and it is about identity and it is about a sense of self. And yeah. you have to ask the question at times, what are Tottenham Hotspur? Who do they believe they are? And ultimately, everyone that I know that supports Tottenham Hotspur believe that they're a club that should be rubbing shoulders with the very best in elite football. And we're Tottenham, we should play with a certain style. They don't present that maybe underdog spirit that Leicester had that took them to a, a title, for example. They also have that sense of, and I, I, am, I imagine the Tottenham fans would have felt going away to Burnley, that the players would feel this is a game we should win. But that actually counts against them because they don't show up 
to necessarily fight for every single point that they get in the, in the Premier League. They believe that they are a top six club by right and maybe that holds them back. And being absolutely brutal, Harry Kane doesn't believe that they are a top nine out of ten team because he wanted to leave. I mean, let's, let's be honest about this. This was Kane's chat last summer. I can't wait any longer to deliver. So they know that themselves. They've got a sense of that themselves. And you're right here. They're, they're kind of caught in between. They're not quite a top team and they're not underdogs. Um, there's something floundering in the middle. And, and there's a few teams like that now, Arsenal, United and, and so on. But yeah, their own captain, the guy that's been the longest, has stopped believing they're going to be that side. You can just look very briefly at, at Burnley's results. You know, they've, they've played Arsenal away at the Emirates, nil-nil. They played United at home, one all. They played Liverpool and Liverpool got that win, but only one nil. And then Tottenham go and lose one nil. Harry Kane hit the bar. They created some chances. They could have got a one all draw. You know, I'm into kind of fine margins of top level sport, but it's true. And Liverpool and Man City are just so, so far ahead. And I think actually we may be judged. And this is what Antonio Conte is now realizing and doing. He's like, I'm miles behind them. Am I expected to get anywhere near them? Because I'm not going to, in the same way that Mourinho had at Tottenham and at Manchester United. And then it's about perception. As you say, Hugh, what the fans, what they want, what they expect. It's about the owners, what they want, what they expect. I don't think losing 1-0 in this manner to Burnley is that disastrous, really. When you when you look at that bigger picture, it, it's not great for their Champions League hopes, but it's not a disaster in the b- bigger context. The bigger context is four defeats in five Premier League games. Of course. So Tottenham Hotspur, we'd expect slightly more than that. Um, Ian, you would, of course, have examined Conte when he was in Italy as well. He says, I have ambition. The manager has changed many times. The players have not, as Johnny told us already. He says, I'm too honest um, to essentially just take a salary. And he says, I will speak with the club. How do you read his feelings about Tottenham Hotspur? I don't think we should immediately file this under some elaborate long-term plan with sort of incremental mind games. I, you know, I think there was a, there is a, is and was a fair bit of emotion and genuine exasperation in that. I agree with, with Tom that the standard at the very top of the Premier League has changed since Antonio Conte won it with Chelsea. I, I guess you absorb that. You you confront it um, after you've after you've come back in for when did he come in November for the for the last three months. And I you know I think I think that probably is dawning on him. Everywhere he goes, with the possible exception of the Italian national team, when you know when he couldn't he couldn't demand new players, and where incidentally he he worked with a very very ordinary squad and 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 they they overachieved. But at every club he's been at there. You know, there's a rolling tension about resources, essentially. So, you know, this is this is part of the modus operandi. At Spurs, he will have detected that you you have to fight hard uh, for for every big signing, and and particularly hard to keep the the players that he values. So, so this will be part of it. But um, I don't know. Spurs Spurs do need to keep a manager for a while now, don't they? So, you know, that there has to be. There has to be a leap of faith on both sides for for this to to endure and and you know to look like look like what's called a project. But from what you've experienced, is this just his his personality? Is he maybe being a bit too dramatic? Some might say because at the at the weekend they were the best players in the world, in his words, 
And basically, he's, he's pointing out that they're a terrible squad now, four days later. I mean, you do need to be able to read your, your coach, your manager. This is the figurehead of a football club. And this is swinging from one side to the other vastly. I don't know where Tottenham fans will be feeling today. Their club stands with him at the helm. Or indeed, uh, Tottenham players, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I say, I, I, think, I think there was, you know, there was genuine emotion in in what he said yesterday you know the players will already have have learned to take some of what he says publicly with a pinch of salt um and you know they were, will realize that they are in for a long sort of combative course of of getting used to antonio conti the problem will come when uh, if, if if they start believing that actually it may not be worth getting used to him for a very long time because he looks as if he's already pushing at the exit door. I don't, I don't think we're there yet, but there is a danger that that becomes the perception and that's, um, you know, that, that's no good for the club and it's no good for the squad and it's no good for morale. I'm not sure. I think he might be pushing at the exit door. I mean, he's just not going to get what he wants from Daniel Levy at Tottenham Hotspur. It, it, it seems to me to be one of the most disastrous relationships that has ever been built in football someone who loves to spend money on older players, experienced players, joining a chairman of a football club who barely likes to spend on any players at all, whose recruitment is not very good, let's be perfectly frank, about the players that have gone in at Tottenham Hotspur. Um, so not only does he need loads more money than Tottenham are usually prepared to spend, he needs the recruitment to be vastly improved. Um, but like I said, uh, you know, I can only take Antonio Conte at his word. He says he's too honest to just take the salary. So so do we think he's going to be the manager of Spurs by the start of next season? No, I don't think so, Hugh. I, and I, I, read it, I read it like you do, actually. I think as, as well as the four defeats of five, there was the January window and, and that seemed to be a, a, a crisis point, a very early crisis point in their relationship. I mentioned Harry Kane not believing in it. Luis Diaz didn't believe in it and went to Liverpool instead. That's a huge... I mean, what a blow that was because he's an electric talent and, and could have given Spurs another dimension and, and now he's just making Liverpool even better so I think Conte conf- confronted with the realities of the Premier League as, as Ian says and the realities of what Tottenham are in terms of their appeal, in terms of what Levy's prepared to spend it's not his style, I think he's being honest when he said he doesn't hang around to take the salary, it's not what drives him it's not his style to to stay and, and fight for mediocrity and I yeah, I, I can see this one ending in the summer, if not before. I know I don't think he will either. But I just reflecting on some of the things the guy said there, and in lots of ways, Conte was the bad fit, not just for the money points that you've made, Hugh, but also just kind of allowing Tottenham to get a bit of an identity as well. You know, a post Pochettino identity, which is what they're what they're craving, really. You know, he's he's the two year trophy manager, and as you say, spend a lot of money. And I think they now need to think about a broader vision. And, you know, maybe we also, as part of the conversation, need to stop, as I said as I said earlier, you know, stop judging them against, oh, well, they're this far off. You know, and I think the same goes for Manchester United and Arsenal as well. You know, they're this far off the top. They're this far off Liverpool and Manchester City. Just forget about that. Like, think about what you are as a club, what you're hoping to achieve. And if that's a cup run and fourth, that's fine. Because the point is, we're, we've framed a lot of this conversation around battle for the top four in a very like negative way, actually, that all these teams, apart from West Ham, are crap. Yes, they have performed poorly. Yes, we've all watched them and thought, God, this is really lacklustre performance. But actually, as I say, the Premier League is incredibly difficult. They've all gone through changes, Tottenham and Manchester United in particular. The important thing for Tottenham now 
if Antonio Conte is to leave, is that they think about the bigger picture and think about a long-term plan and appoint a manager that they're prepared to give time. Ian, I take it you're going to say he will be there at the start of next year? <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not. I, I might challenge you about whether it's the worst relationship ever forged between a coach and a club. But, um, <laughs> but I'm sure we could come up with our alternative lists, possibly even including recent Tottenham managers. But um, no, I'm not. But, uh, you know, it, it, everything that uh, has just been described now about Tottenham seeking long division points points towards reappointing Mauricio Pochettino, which I don't think is going to happen in the summer, but, you know, he, he he looks better and better suited to Tottenham with each day since he's left, doesn't he? I mean, it's it's a weird one because uh, last night I, I felt exactly the same thing watching Conte's interviews and he pretty much said the same thing to every single broadcaster. He was very open about his feelings. I think he might end up at Manchester United, Conte, and I think Pochettino might end up back at Spurs. I honestly, it just, you know... It just it just came to me, like I'm sure many football <laughs> fans felt exactly the same way. It just seems to fit in many ways. But would Pochettino going back be a good thing, Johnny? I think, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. He, he looks a better and better Spurs manager with each day. You watch Spurs and with each sort of trophy that PSG failed to somehow win. Um, no, that's a bit cruel. But the serious point in that is he looks like the, the long-term builder, the, the guy that likes to work with youth and underdogs. And maybe not suited to a, to a PSG. And I've, I've never been convinced he'd be suited to be a Manchester United manager. But, but he is suited to Spurs and, and their culture. He had a fantastic relationship with, with Daniel Levy until he didn't, as, as it were. But, you know, they were they were very close to each other. They were very aligned. And it, it would it would be a better fit. And Conte to United, I mean, the, I think from, from what I understand, the biggest barrier was Ed Woodward's reticence about it and Edward Wood isn't there so maybe 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 we shall see uh, what happens with it's so Burnley uh, what, what would we call the Tottenham soap opera I don't know Antonio's bunch or something like that I don't know anyway down at the bottom of the Premier League the saga continues as well and um, Watford losing 4-1 to Palace Leeds hammered 6-0 by Liverpool and I did want to discuss Leeds performance it is only the second time in football league history that Leeds have conceded six or more goals in a campaign. 1935 is the last time. They've done it twice, excuse me, in the same campaign. So big questions for Marcelo Bielsa as to whether he's the right coach in the relegation battle because they conceded four at the weekend as well. So 10 in two games. Um, Liverpool had 30 shots in this game. I'm sorry, but it's time Marcelo Bielsa took a leaf out of Sean Dyche's book as far as I'm concerned. What do you think, Tom? I'm going to defend Bielsa and Leeds as much as that might sound strange given how you've just teed me up there, Hugh. Uh, I was speaking to Rick Broadbent, who we spoke to on the podcast before, who's a Leeds fan, uh, and he's writing a piece for us, which you can read later in defence of Bielsa. Obviously, as a Leeds fan, Bielsa is adored and will always be adored for what he's done for the club and for the city. Rick was making the points, you know, that as much as this kind of slightly... uh, mad style of football at times causes you to lose 6-0 at Liverpool. It has brought the joy back to being a Leeds fan and that is invaluable. I also think you read out a stat there, Hugh. I'm going to hit you back with one. Calvin Phillips. I mean, you don't... We talked last season in terms of the title race and Liverpool's injuries. When it comes to relegation, you've got to factor injuries in. In the last two seasons, Leeds have lost uh, 16 of 22 games without Calvin Phillips whereas they've lost only 11 of 41 with him in the team. 
in terms of a massive miss, he's been huge. Liam Cooper. Oh, the hold on a minute. All you're, all, you're, all you're doing here is pointing out that Marcelo Bielsa hasn't worked out a way of playing without him. Let me finish. Let me finish. They also don't have the chance to go and spend loads of money to buy a new Calvin Phillips because Calvin Phillips would cost around 40 to 50 million. They also not just missing Calvin Phillips. They're missing the captain, Liam Cooper, for a big run of games recently. And I also think Patrick Bamford's miss. I don't think there's any striker, maybe in modern football, certainly in the Premier League, who is missed as much for his defensive work as for his goals as Patrick Bamford. When you watch Manchester United and other teams, their centre-backs just streaming forward out of defence and starting attacks for Leeds, Bamford would never let that happen. So, yes, you will, you will come back to me and say, the manager's job is to fix that. I think that's a hell of a job to fix missing your captain, your best player in defensive midfield, and your second best player, your striker. I just think you, you could you could have you could have said, oh well, let's sack Bielsa and bring in Sean Dyche or someone. I don't necessarily think they would have kept them up with that team and with those injuries. I think without those three players, and particularly Phillips and Bamford, they're not a strong team and a strong squad. So they'd be trying to pick up points, and they'll get hammered by Liverpool. I, I just think. It, to point the finger at Bielsa now for all he's done for the team and for the Premier hold League on, hold on, is a hold little on. bit, is a little bit easy after a 6-0 defeat. Hold on. He pointed the finger at himself at the weekend. Of course he did. Because, he's not gonna, because he that's said actually it's down good to management. me to that's find a solution to it. He's to not the fact they're it. conceding loads of goals. Joel Matip has done a 1-2 with his winger and scored a goal. Okay, what running from centre-back last Bamford? night. What have I just said about Patrick Bamford? You're not listening to me now. I've oh, just no, no, said no, no, Patrick no, no. Bamford I'm sorry. would not let that I'm sorry. happen. He's not in the team. I've never been a Premier League central midfielder, but I'm sorry. Someone on that field, and not necessarily your striker, should be tracking that run. Come on. Yeah, they should be. But also, is I'm also on board with Bielsa staying and blaming himself because he's not going to kick the players when they've lost 6-0 and they're in a relegation scrap and he's going to say, it's not good enough. They're useless. Because ultimately, a lot of them aren't good enough. We've said this before about Leeds. A lot of their players are probably championship players playing in the Premier League that he has elevated. He has elevated with his coaching. And now they're finding themselves maybe, and this is another point Rick's made when he's been on the podcast before, a bit mentally tired, maybe even a bit physically tired. They looked absolutely knackered at the end against Manchester no, United. The dreaded burnout. Are you going to say it? Are you going to be the first journalist no, to venture towards burnout this season? No, Shut I'm your not social media down. Change your address if it's publicly listed. They'll be after you. I'm not going to say burnout. I just think there's lots of factors and I don't think it's just Bielsa. Johnny? I'm all for fans and and clubs deciding that they uh, are in love with a manager for joy, for identity um, and for the journey, for the ride. And that's what seems to be happening with Leeds and Bielsa. Giving some neutral analysis to it, I think they are... I mean, this is it's pointing at the bleeding obvious, but they're right on the precipice now, and I can't. I'm, I'm beginning to 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 see no way out of, of of this decline unless they change the players. If they're not going to change the manager, I think they need to to change players because they are mentally tired, they are physically tired, they are too reliant on Calvin Phillips. Joel Matic was steaming through the middle of the the, the, the team, um, but that's not the first time this has happened. There's such huge gaps there, and Bielsa hasn't he hasn't stayed at a club this length of time before. We don't. This is uncharted territory. We don't know whether he can sustain it without having to change players. But 
you know what, what we what we can see is the direction of travel. So if Leeds want to keep Bielsa, and I understand it from the, the fans' point of view, brilliant. But they might go down, and they might enjoy that. They might go down, rebuild, and come back up, and still have this this great manager who does bring them joy. Has brought them joy even in recent weeks. Has brought them joy. Think about the you know some of the the performances, the 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 West Ham game, for example. But my goodness me, they're so open. So easy, so tired at the moment. Um, it can't just be about having a couple of injuries. I don't see, I guess to sum up, I don't see how this changes with the same group of players and Bielsa. Something's going to have to give. And if it's not Bielsa, I think they're going to have to, to re- refresh and, 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 and restart if, if they want to stay in the Premier League. They might, they might not go down this year, but the, the, the direction is, is, is pretty grim. I could see it happening next year, if not this year. We've just talked about Tottenham and an identity. We can't then immediately then go to Leeds and just dismiss that when we're at the other end of the table. It still it still matters. And when we're talking about them getting hammered as well this season, they were getting hammered last season as well against big teams. You know, didn't they lose six two at Manchester United and were about four nil down in about twenty minutes? And we're all going, oh, "This is absolutely mental." But because they finished mid table and they were fine, you know, I think they could finish seventeenth this season and be very poor and have missed a lot of key players and they'll stay up. And then we can have a conversation about Bielsa. I just think pointing the finger at him now and going, oh, well, it's not good enough. You know, I do keep coming back to the injuries because as well, thinking about the top of the table last season, how many pundits, we all did it, made excuses for Liverpool and the injuries. And they've got way more money. They could have gone out and spent loads of money in January. They did sign players and they got no better. No one was going, Jurgen Klopp, absolute load of rubbish. It's his job. He needs to sort it out. If he's got the players, he needs to sort it out. You can't lose Calvin Phillips and Patrick Bamford. <laughs> Yo, I mean, you might you might have done, Hugh, feeling in a punchy mood potentially as a <clears throat> Manchester United fan. But like, I just don't think you can underestimate those factors. I think there are two different conversations. One about Bielsa in the summer, one about Bielsa now. Kicking him now doesn't do us any good. Just to clarify, I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at Bielsa in terms of his abilities, his genius. We, we can see it but what he's not, he's a purist. What he's not is the, the pragmatist that's going to alter plan A and, and try and get out of this. So I'm just trying to say Leeds have got a choice and it seems like the fans are willing to make that choice and stick with this guy. And good luck to them because it's great fun. It's, it's, it's probably the best Leeds fans have felt for, for 20, 30 years. Great, fine. But they might, they, they might have to go down to come back up playing like this. Final word on it, Ian, who's been waiting patiently in <laughs> Naples. Yeah, well, mainly I'm looking forward to Leeds against Tottenham because of the different managerial discourse. One manager saying it's all their fault, it's nothing to do with me. The other manager absolutely dogmatically saying everything is my fault. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to sound like men from two different planets, isn't it? I, I agree with Johnny that, that um, for all that Bielsa has done and for all that his ideas have been successful. Leeds are going to have to evolve quite radically to, to move this on. And, and Thomas pointed out that you know their shortfalls, um, their their dependence on certain players, and you and you can't you can't really do that unless perhaps you're Burnley in the Premier League and, and survive. So I think you know there is there's quite a serious revision ahead in the summer, which doesn't necessarily mean the change in the manager, but it probably does mean a slightly broader strategy about recruitment if they can if they can find the money for it. And of course, they're more likely to find the money for it if they're still in the Premier League. 
Right, up next, we'll be talking about the Champions League, Europa League and the EFL as well. Remember, if you're enjoying the game podcast, uh, make sure you rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. So it was another eventful week of European football. Um, let's start with Manchester United's trip to Atletico Madrid, which ended in a one-all draw. I think I'd, I'd categorise this as Manchester United escaping with a draw. Jonathan Northcroft, what did you make about their performance and how they did it? Yeah, they did escape. It was it was very uh it was very united. It was very Bruno Fernandes. Perhaps it was very this season, perhaps it was a bit Ralph Ranick. The first eighty minutes were, were were appalling from United's point of view. He got his selection wrong, Lindelof at right back. There because he had extra height at set pieces and he'd been playing well Fine, but just couldn't deal with just couldn't deal with the pace and the movement out wide from Atletico targeted them. Appalling in midfield, couldn't pass the ball. Uh, Bruno Fernandes had one of his worst games in the United shirt, but the substitutions did make a difference. And and then in you know later on, you get this incredible team move from the back with Ronaldo coming short and working hard involved. Fred, who was hopeless, suddenly coming up with a nice little nimble bit of footwork and a good ball and Fernandes playing a, a fantastic through pass and, and the substitute getting them out of jail with a lovely finish by Alanga who who just injected all the the, the sort of vim and, and um, adventure that they, they'd been missing and you're left looking at the United and going, how do you analyse this? Just another chapter in you know, the, the chaos of this season, I guess. I can analyse it if you want, Johnny. Manchester United continue to play a style of football that will not lead to them winning any major trophies. You know, it's there to... Uh, you can understand why a lot of mid-table teams or even teams lower in divisions would play a style like this. It gives you the ability to shock teams if you can outwork them, if you can present something that is more intense. But it lacks quality and, importantly, control for me. And if you can't control matches, you will not win big titles. But it was an interesting clash, I think, Ian, because of Diego Simeone's Atletico Madrid, who've been struggling themselves against the Manchester United side, who aren't, you know, the United of old either. But I actually think Atleti raised their game, knowing it was a knockout game in the Champions League, in the way that you would expect sides to. And I didn't think Manchester United really did. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, Atleti for 80 minutes essentially were were the stronger side. And, and Simeone made some some brave decisions. He's, you know, he's made some bad decisions this season, more than more than anybody can remember. He put Renan Lodi into midfield and, and he's quite a sort of questioned left back. And, uh, you know, he was he was unplayable. Now, I must say, once he decided to play two left backs and put Lodi further forward, when he saw Lindelof at right back, he must have been absolutely thrilled. Um because uh, Lindelof had a terrible time against this, and and you know, of course, he he left out Luis Suarez, and uh, Griezmann was on the bench. He's been injured, and Joao Felix, former wonder kid, was was left in charge. And boy, did he rise to the occasion! I thought he was he was fabulous, and United really couldn't cope with him for certainly for the first half. So uh, yeah, I mean, Atleti. Utterly delighted with with this transformation, but also recognizing the old Simeone trademark, and then at the end, um, yeah, exasperated by by the way that, that it finished, um, only one one, and and it was a lovely move, as Johnny said, to, to lead to Elanga's goal, but uh, but there was a there was a terrible defensive decision just beforehand by Ronaldo, I think. 
Mm. I think it was a very good performance from Atletico Madrid. Certainly one that was, it was almost better than I was expecting. And the ball just didn't drop their way in, in front of goal. Manchester United, I expected a lot more from, not just as a, as a fan, because I think they played that game against Leeds and, and matched the intensity of, of Leeds in many ways to get that win. I thought, right, that's it. Maybe it will click for them. You know, this is the required level. Maybe they didn't have the energy because it was an energy sapping game against Leeds to, to replicate that away in Spain. They'll take a draw home and I think they'll be very um, encouraged that they can go through against that Letico Madrid at Old Trafford. Ralph Rannick spoke about Anthony Alanga, who scored the goal, by saying he plays as though it's a dream come true with fun and joy. And he said, I wish a few other players would take him as an example and a role model and do the same. Tom Clark, who's he talking about? Oh, gosh, who isn't he talking about? I think talk, thinking about that idea of joy, that comes with an idea, you know, a bit of zest and a bit of enthusiasm and a bit of intensity. And what I found interesting watching Manchester United this season and for a long time is to me, you, you know, when you see players dropping into space and going, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. United players, more than any other team, point to other players when the man's on the ball and say, pass to him, not pass to me, pass to him. So you'll have the ball at centre-back with Maguire or Varane and Fred or Pogba will be pointing to someone else going, pass there, pass there, rather than dropping into the pocket and going, give me the ball, I'm going to make it happen. And with that also comes, just makes it very static. The other thing I noticed is in modern football at the highest level, formations are meant to be irrelevant as journalists were all going, what formation is it? What formation is it? And when you think about Manchester City and things you get and Jao Cancelo playing at right back and then also at left wing, it doesn't matter. Manchester United are one of the only teams that you put a formation out in a newspaper and then you look at them on the pitch and that's exactly what they look like. Maybe when it comes to bring it back to Alanga, it's some of those things that Ranić's talking about. Just that little pop of enthusiasm, that little burst of pace, the enthusiasm to kind of drop into the pocket to try and make things happen, create a move. Because weirdly, I thought United looked best, and I don't know whether Ian would agree with me, when Atleti kind of came out of their shell a bit and started being a bit unathletic-like, going, thinking to themselves, this lot of crap, let's have a go here. And then they'd lose the ball higher at the pitch and the United, just by, you know, without thinking about it, would knock a few passes together quite quickly. And you'd go, yeah, there you go, there you go, that's how you do it. But that was only because Atleti had kind of got a bit carried away and gone a bit up too far out of position and on Simeone like. To me, it's just all the players could learn from Alanga in that sense. And it's just that lack of verve, that lack of spark, I suppose, that seems to be just completely um, you know, crippling the team at the minute. Uh, what do you think, Ian, about, I don't know, about that sense that, that Alanga could be a role model to others in the, in the squad? What is Ralph Rannick trying to say to his players? lighten up a bit it seems to me that this is actually this has been quite a quite a breakthrough week in the in the or a couple of weeks in the champions league you've suddenly had the wonder kids coming through you had uh, vlavic scoring within what 40 seconds of his champions league debut for juventus um uh, as well felix uh, you know looking after after two up and down years like the 100 million plus uh, footballer that, that 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 he became when he was still a teenager, and I, I you know I don't think we can put Elanga in that bracket yet, but uh, yeah, it, it, I don't know. There's a sort of hint of a generational shift, I think, and and of course you had a Mbappe the, a 
week earlier scoring what Hugh thought was a very fluky goal, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the game. So, uh, uh, I mean, there was clearly a message in what in what uh, Rangnick said, and this is you know this is clearly, as Tom said, a very angst-ridden team a lot of the time. So, you know, if 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 you can throw off some of that angst, then then you know they're they're, they're going to benefit. Just very quickly, Hugh, on that idea of placing that as Elanga as a role model. You had another player out there last night who was a young player given his chance in Europe by an older manager who was maybe a little bit out of his depth in Marcus Rashford and Louis van Gaal. Rashford, for the years to come, has then been absolutely hammered in terms of expectation, leading the club, you know, boy from Manchester, from the academy, etc., etc. I think Anthony Elanga is the, the bright spark for Manchester United at the minute. It's the one thing that Ralph Ranjinitz has done given him game time he needs to be very careful how he uses him now and how whoever the next manager is going forward uses him as well I'm not saying he's as good as Rashford I think they're different players as well but just in terms of being that emblem that's a hell of a lot of pressure to put on a young player just to expand on that because I was thinking of Rashford and, and Van Gaal as well I was also thinking of David Moyes and Yanazai and we've seen this before at United where a manager confronts a sort of broken situation with Maybe older players in the squad that he 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 can't sort of manoeuvre and 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 get hold of emotionally and 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 in terms of intensity, and then finds the young talent and thinks, well, that's that's what I want. I want more of that. And and Ranić, who's always enjoyed working more with young players anyway, and is very prescriptive, is is doing the same as them. And this is this seems to be part of the United pattern. It's it's almost a reaction against the the establishment in the squad. This is what I want. Um, at some point, they've got to uh, actually, as Tom kind of hints, they've got to grab hold of these talents and, and be able to build around them. And, and each time they get hold of one, there's there's also a pretty depressing United pattern where that, that young talent over time loses their their spark. So let's let's hope for, for Anthony Langer it doesn't happen to him. Speaking of losing their spark, let's talk about Chelsea, who did win their game against Lille by two goals to nil. But Romelu Lukaku was on the bench for this match after his now infamous, if you like, seven touches at the weekend in the Premier League. It doesn't seem like he's really gelling in that front line for Chelsea at the moment. Kai Havertz, given the opportunity to step up, got a goal. Is there going to be a transition there, Johnny, do you think, in this in this Chelsea team? The problem that Lukaku's got is Havertz offers everything that the Tuchel needs and that fits with his his style and and Lukaku doesn't and that's that that's that's the, been the oddity of of seeing him added to that Chelsea team. You know, Havertz's his movement, his mobility, his link, his elusiveness, that to me seems the point of of, of what Thomas Tuchel's trying to do up front. Getting in spaces, asking questions trying to drag centre-backs out of position to allow the wide players to come in, trying to link with, you know, attacking midfielders, playing between the lines. That's not Lukaku's game. And I've felt sorry for Lukaku and even more so this last week where he's been, I mean, as Thomas Tuchel said, let's stop laughing at him. But I feel like the joke's on him and it's not his fault. If you watch how Lukaku's playing for Chelsea, he's he's playing his conventional learned game as a number nine that he's perfected over the last 10, 12 years of his of his career. He's not doing anything different. He perhaps lacks confidence, but you see him holding the same positions, getting in the box for crosses, 
trying to go away from the ball rather than towards it a lot of the time. But all the stuff that he's done to make him the player that Chelsea signed for £97 million and it just doesn't fit with the, what the rest of the team's doing. Then you see Havertz in there who's doing something entirely different and, and, it, and it clicks. So the, the, the problem Tuchel's got, of course, is the problem that other Chelsea managers have had when big signings don't work. There's an expectation from Abramovich, Gravinskaya and the hierarchy for the coaches to make those signings work. I don't know, there may be a standoff to come over Lukaku with Tuchel leaving him out, continuing to play Havertz and maybe putting himself at risk a little bit. But I, I, it, it's hard to see. I don't think I, I don't think Lukaku's doing anything wrong. I just think he's doing it in the wrong team. Tom, EFL Cup final for Chelsea on Sunday afternoon against Liverpool. Should Lukaku start? Uh, no. For some of the reasons that Johnny's just outlined then, I think a Havertz system, a Havertz-led system would be more effective. But... I could see Lukaku having a role to play coming off the bench. And I wonder whether a scenario like that in a big game where the pressure's off him, because I'm, I, I'm, I'm on board with Tuchel taking him out of the team for this Champions League tie. I think that was a sensible move, not just tactically, just in terms of managing personnel. I think that was a clever move. I just wonder whether it'll take a moment like that, maybe coming off the bench, changing the game, using you know some of his energy against a tired defence to kind of kickstart his career. Because I agree with everything Johnny said. He's been, you know, slightly hampered by this tag that he was he was the guy that was going to turn Chelsea into a title winning side. You know, we talked about that that level that City and Liverpool are at. But that only works then if you then build your team around him and Tuchel hasn't necessarily done that. So it's a been an inconvenient marriage in that sense. I wouldn't start him in the final, but I wonder whether a a, a moment like 20 minutes come off the bench make a difference might kickstart re, you know, reignite his Chelsea career. Listen, the Champions League this week was was okay, but it was no Europa League, was it, Tom? I mm-hmm. told you, I told you, you were right. You were right. We've we've do, we've done you a disservice, Hugh. To be fair, we like to make fun of you and particular Alison Rudd with <laughs> thanks to me and <laughs> producer John doing our jingly jangly thing where we clip clip up moments where you've said silly things in the past that have turned out to be fundamentally false. You did say it would be a thriller, and I thought of you instantly when I saw that Rangers Dortmund score. I mean, what a cracker of a game. If the second leg is anything like that, what a treat that will be. There's exciting ties and there's big teams in the in the competition. And I think unlike the Champions League where we talked about we're waiting for those games further down the line, the Europa League's got it all now. Mm, absolutely, it does. And Ian Hawkey, who's had to leave us, he's gone off to enjoy some pizza in Naples, the best pizza in Italy, I'm told. So he had to he had to dart off, but he's there for very good reason. And I'm sure if it's a an amazing tie between Barcelona and Napoli, he'll be back to tell us all about it next week. Uh, there is still more to come on the game podcast. We'll be talking about the EFL. Stay with us. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So, Tom, what a mark for Fulham's Alexander Mitrovic. He has beaten a championship record, not a second division record, just to point it out to all the people that that are going to highlight this, okay? It is very specifically a championship record, 32 goals already scored in February um, for Fulham, who've scored 81 goals, by the way, this season. What does it say about Fulham? What does it say about Alexander Mitrovic? It says that Mitrovic is a... Excellent striker. And I think probably where this conversation is heading, like a lot of conversations around him is, is he just too good for the championship, not good enough for the Premier League? But I actually don't think that's true. I was looking back at his stats. He scored 36 in 69 for Anderlecht. Yeah, you find you can make comparisons with the Belgian league and what level that would be in English football. But he then went into a Newcastle side that was largely coached by Rafa Benitez, trying to find some solidity and doing what Rafa Benitez does. I don't think he particularly gears aside for a, for a striker to score loads of goals like this Fulham squad have in the championship. We've talked about it before in terms of teams going down and then being well-equipped to come back up again, principally if you keep a strong squad, which Fulham have, and he's the talisman of that squad. But let's not let's not do any disservice. I am one of the biggest um, fans of the Football League and say what difficult leagues they all are and the real quality in the championship. So, so to score that many goals, both as a team and as an individual, is seriously, seriously impressive. It's kind of impressive. <laughs> but, okay, so this is the extent of my research. While Tom was talking, I could just kind of Googled a, a clickbait site that's got a list of the last 10 championship top scorers, which are Ricky Lambert in 2011-12, Glenn Murray, Matthias Vidra, Ross McCormack, you see where I'm going with this. Daryl Murphy, Andre Gray, Chris Wood, Timo Pukki. So I don't, I don't know. Ollie Watkins, may, maybe. Of those, maybe Ollie Watkins and Ivan Tony could end up being a top Premier League striker, I guess. But, you know, there, there is clearly a difference between scoring goals in the, in the Championship and in the Premier League. It doesn't mean it's not impressive because you've got to battle through that difficult fixture list that, 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 that there's probably an art to to some of those games that maybe your <clears throat> your fancier more subtle Premier League strikers might not be able to master that Mitrovic can but that old wisdom that you get about six chances per game in the championship and you get two chances or one chance per game uh, or seven touches per game for some Premier League strikers clearly means there's a difference in, in playing at those two levels. So brilliant. Well done, Mitrovic. But I wouldn't be putting him in my fantasy league team next year in the Premier League. No, I tend to agree with you. I mean, there is a perfect position for him in the Premier League, and that is Dominic Calvert-Lewin's understudy at Everton. Okay, taking Salomon Rondon's place or Cenk Tosin, depending on how you see it. <laughs> that is the future for Alexander Mitrovic. Um, but, I, but I've always said this. I can, I'm always concerned about him starting for a Premier League side, particularly towards the bottom of the league, because his temperament isn't suited. Um, and this is only going on what we've seen before. He becomes a highly frustrated and a more and more isolated figure whilst playing for those clubs down at the bottom of the table. He loves playing for a team that wins every week. He absolutely adores it. And his goal record suggests exactly that. But listen, elsewhere in the EFL, there are some things that we need to talk about. A couple of 
managerial returns for ex-Manchester United players. Paul Ince comes in until the end of the season at Reading after Velko Paunovic's dismissal. And this did raise a few eyebrows. I, I'm very surprised by it. I have to say it's eight years since Paul Ince has been in coaching. Um, Tom, do you think he can rescue Reading? It's a hell of a hell of an ask. I mean, Reading this season, I've watched them a few times and obviously they're knocked out of the uh, FA Cup in fairly embarrassing fashion. Um, it's a hell of a job. And as you say, it's not it's not just the eight years since he's been in management. It's it's a lot longer since he did anything particularly impressive in management. You know, he started out at Macclesfield and was, was brilliant, um, did really well there, did okay at MK Dons. Well, did well at MK Dons, sorry, and then got the big job at Blackburn and didn't last very long. Um, and then since then, it was, it was very short stints. So maybe from that point of view, in terms of being a manager who lifts mood, corrects small issues and kind of brings everyone together in a short space of time, maybe it could work. But yeah, it, that that one really surprised me in terms of being given an opportunity like that. But maybe Reading are in a position where they're like, well, we, you know, we can't lose here. Let's try something different. And as I say, maybe maybe it's the kind of man manager thing that they're going for. They've had a good good week or so, back to back wins. In fact, they're unbeaten in three, and they're now eight points above Derby County. So it's been massive for them, and maybe gives Paul Ince a little bit of a buffer in terms of um, keeping Reading in. Uh, the championship. Now we've got to talk about the other big news in the EFL, the other big managerial appointment. Bradford City have appointed Mark Hughes, which I find absolutely incredible. They are 15th in League Two. The ex-Manchester City boss is back in football. Um, Johnny, what can he offer them? I don't know. Jose Basingua coming in to <coughs> help them battle their way out of it. I'm not sure. I'm still. I've still got a little bit of Mark Hughes kind of love or faith as a manager because I, I I was I was covering that Manchester City period quite closely and I actually felt that he 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 did a really good job. It was difficult. He was he was in the Eddie Howe position, as it were, you know, with a with, with a takeover and, and the responsibility of, of of trying to make a successful and he, he did really well. There's an intensity about him. Um there's a, he was quite sensible in his decisions and he was, you know, probably badly done to when he was sacked his career since then has, has has been pretty odd pretty underwhelming strange signings he had what a 40 million pound desk at qpr installed made of pure granite and marble and jewels or something like that i mean some real excess in, in 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 the record but you know he was a really good manager at city i think up to a point and maybe he can maybe bradford is the place to recapture that that mojo what it does tell you he 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 must love it he must want it to to try again there he, he, i'm sure he doesn't need the money or the aggravation so in some senses maybe a bit like ince there's a there's an itch that hasn't been scratched there's a love that's still there for for the dugout and um it'd be quite a nice story to see him reboot his career there over three and a half years out of football since being sacked by Southampton. And actually, I was surprised by that. I thought it was even longer. Um, he says, it's maybe a little bit of a surprise that I've come in, but do not be put off by that. I'm here for a reason, to make Bradford City a team people want to come and watch and are proud to watch. And maybe it's just the glitz and the glamour the club's appointed him because he will attract people in through the door. 
Yeah, he could do. I mean, that's, that is a factor with managers of his uh, standing at that level. He will have connections within the game that will allow him to bring in players on loan, potentially further down the line. I think I'd, I'd just like to echo Johnny's point about Hughes as a manager and also talk, you know, he was very impressive as Wales manager and then as Blackburn manager before his time at City, you know, slightly contrasting the points I was making about Inns, who'd only ever had short spells and never really got going. You know, Hughes was at Blackburn a long time and did a lot of good stuff and was brought into City on the back of that, seen as one of the upcoming coaches. Um, he also had a long, pretty long spell at Stoke, I think. Um, and that's when he kind of, he, he his perception changed from the upcoming coach in football to the guy who keeps teams up from being relegated, which is why he then gets jobs at QPR and Southampton, where he wasn't as successful. I, I actually just find it quite admirable, really. I mean, I'm no, he, I know he'll be getting paid. I know he's very, been very well paid throughout his career, but it's great and fascinating to see. I mean, uh, my uncle, who taught me a lot about football growing up, always used to drive him mad when top-level Premier League managers would say, oh, this is an incredibly difficult job. And he used to say, that's not a difficult job. Go and marry him, manage in League Two and see how you get on. Well, he's finally got his wish. A Premier League manager has gone to manage in League Two to see what a difficult job it is. So it'll be fascinating to see how he gets on, what he's able to bring in terms of coaching, as you say, Hugh, whether it'll be more than just the the aura of a Mark Hughes in League Two, because yeah, I know I bang on about this all the time. That is a hell of a difficult league to get out of, but that's what Bradford want to do. Bradford are a, a big city with a big football following. They've they've been in the Premier League before. They expect better than that. They have big crowds, big attendances. So, you know, maybe this would be a start of a perfect, perfect friendship, perfect relationship that will see them getting promoted eventually. We shall see. Uh, Tom Clark, Jonathan Northcroft, Ian Hawkey, who was with us earlier. Thanks for being with me on the Game Podcast this week. We will update you on some big news around UEFA and whether the Champions League final will still be in Russia on Monday. We are waiting for that extraordinary meeting, I think it's been termed by UEFA, before we do uh, bring you reaction to that. So join us on Monday. Uh, In the meantime, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. So just go online and check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.